0: Welcome to our service. I want to invite you to stand and uh, join me in the call to worship printed in your bulletin. I read responsively this morning. In you, Lord our God, we put our trust... No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame, but shame will come on those who are treacherous without cause. Show us your ways, Lord. He has surpassed in your truth and teach us. For you are God, our Savior, and our hope is in you all day long. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore he instructs sinners in his ways. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. All the, ways of the Lord are and faithful for those who keep the of his heart. Let's pray together. Father, we gather in wonder and praise of you today. Throughout all ages you have been active in your creation, working redemption for humankind. You've been patient with us not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But your word is clear, Lord. The day is coming when you will judge the earth. Remind us this morning of our need to be ready for your return and give us grace and help to prepare appropriately. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
1: come to give praise to God. I'm glad that you are a part of this gathering today. Before you're seated, take a moment, share a word of grace and peace, a word of greeting with others who are here in worship. There's an insert in your bulletin this morning about the missions weekend, which will be next, uh, coming Saturday and Sunday. We would love for you to be a part of it, not only here on Sunday morning, but Sunday night as well as Saturday. There's a brunch on Saturday. We'd love to have you attend that and also a couple of sessions, uh, a part of that brunch. You can sign up today in the table in the foyer or contact the church office so we have an idea of how many people to expect. We hope you'll be a part of this gathering as we think this year just a little bit more about what's happening uh, more locally uh, around us in our, in our nation and uh, the needs that are there as we think about God at work. Tonight, please note that Koinonia meets from 5.30 to 6.30. That's a change in normal time. And next Sunday morning, we gather for worship 8, 20, 9, 40, and 11. And Rich Avery, who is the director of Wesleyan Native Ministries, will be here to speak as part of our missions weekend. On Monday, February 27th, we'll be hosting a membership class. If you're interested in joining this church or knowing more about uh, membership or the church, feel free to attend the class and uh, just let me know so we have materials ready for you. And you can contact me uh, through the church office and we'll get those ready. As always, there are a number of prayer concerns that uh, we uh, want to remember. Uh, we, to add it to the list of things in the bulletin, we heard yesterday about a bombing at a uh, Samaritan's Purse Bible School in Sudan. And so we certainly want to pray for the people affected by that. And, and of course, that's not an isolated incident uh, throughout in our world of violence, and particularly against our brothers and sisters. And we want to remember them in our prayers. And also, um, a former uh, pastor in the district, Eldon Simon, died yesterday after a lengthy illness. And his service will be here at the church uh, Wednesday morning at 11 o'clock. And a visitation will be Tuesday at the Copeland Williams Funeral Home, 2 to 4 and 7 to 9. And that's for Eldon Simon. Please join me in the prayer of confession that is printed in your bulletin. Let's pray together in unison. Almighty God, you have raised Jesus from death to life and crowned him Lord of all. We confess that we have not bowed before him or acknowledged his rule in our lives. We have gone along with the ways of the world and failed to give him glory. Forgive us and raise us from sin that we may be your faithful people, obeying the commands of our Lord Jesus Christ, who rules the world and is head of the church, his body. In his name we pray. Amen.
0: Our Old Testament scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Joshua, chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Joshua 1, 1 through 9. Hear the word of the Lord. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon, and from the great river the Euphrates, all the Hittite country, to the great sea on the west. No one will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous, because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. At this time, I invite you to stand with me for the singing of the doxology as our ushers come forward to receive our morning tithes and offerings. Thank you, Lord, for giving us so much. All we have comes from you, and in you we have all that we need. And now this morning we want to give back to you as our act of worship a portion of all that with which you have blessed us. May these our tithes and offerings be an acceptable gift to you, we pray. Receive them and use them as you see fit for your honor and glory and for the advancement of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.
1: Pray in different postures. Sometimes it's we just feel that what we need to do is to stand, sometimes to sit, sometimes lay laying prostrate on the floor, other times kneeling. This morning as we come together to pray, if you would like to kneel, I'm invited to come to the altar and to join me as we pray together. Father, we acknowledge this morning that you have been good to us beyond measure. you surrounded us with so much in this world. Above all, you've, you've placed hope in our hearts through Christ. As we recognize the truth of your nature and the many times that in spite of your goodness, we have been selfish, thoughtless, even rebellious. In this moment of silence, hear our prayer of repentance and whisper to us words of forgiveness. Father, we pray not only for ourselves, but we ask in your mercy that you will minister to the lives where there is sickness, pain, suffering, grief. We pray for your grace, whether the struggle is at work or at home or at school or in the church. In this moment of silence, hear our prayer of intercession. Bring healing and grace and peace to each of our needs. Father, we think about the world in which we live. We're grieved by so much that goes on in our world. Bloodshed and violence. People who live every day with the threat of a bomb exploding in a market. People who live every day with the reality of being trafficked, people who are enslaved, people without food or water or shelter, people whose families have been torn apart. Father, for this world we pray And we thank you for hearing our prayers. Father, we ask that you would open our eyes to see as you see. And open our ears to hear as you hear. Let our minds think as you think. And our arms embrace as you embrace. And our hearts love as you love. And we ask it all for the sake of your glory. And for the redemption of the world through Christ. The one in whose name we offer this prayer. And the one who leaves us the model of prayer, which now we pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil.
0: Our New Testament scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 30. Matthew 25, 1 through 30, and I want to invite you to stand this morning in the tradition of the church through the ages, uh, to stand for the reading of the gospel, and remain standing for the hymn. Matthew 25, 1 through 30, hear the word of the Lord this morning. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with the two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. "'Master,' he said, "'you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more.' His master replied, "'Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness.' The man with the two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man. "...harvesting where you have not sown, and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid, and went out, and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you." His master replied, "...you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown, and gather where I have not scattered seed." Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers, so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth."
1: I look outside and notice that it's February fifth and there's no snow on the ground. And it's kind of warm. And if you're like me and a number of people that I've been talking to lately, you're kind of thinking, what exactly is going on here? I've actually had a number of conversations recently with people who have been wondering, so do you think this has some religious significance? You know, is there something here that we, you know, or is this, is this one of those signs? You, you put that in, you add to that the, uh, some of the major natural disasters we've been experiencing, seemingly this, this increase in. War, persecution of Christians. There's an article uh, actually, the cover story of Newsweek magazine a number of months ago. Armageddon. you know, are we getting close? It, it's on people's minds, and what I find is that when, when we start thinking about the end times, the last days, we tend to focus on the question of when. When is this going to happen? When will this take place? and there there seemingly are always people who will tell us that they know you know just last spring you know the whole thing of it's going to be on some in time in may and you know people we're always wanting to know when and and we're not alone with that it's a question that as people think about the last days they have been asking for centuries including back to the, the first century Matthew 24, which the chapter right before the one we just read, Jesus is, is with his disciples in Jerusalem. It's probably, it's probably the last week of Jesus' life. Matthew doesn't claim to, to write his gospel chronologically, but it sure seems to be that way as you match it up with things. It's that last week, they're in Jerusalem, they've just been in the temple, they walk out, and the disciples are in awe of the massive structure of the temple and the beauty of it. And they say to Jesus, aren't these stones amazing? And Jesus says, the day is coming when there won't be one stone upon another. And what's the disciples' question? When will this be? What will be the sign so that we know it's coming? And the rest of the chapter, Jesus talks to them about the signs. And, you know, he talks about natural disasters and war and famine and change in the weather and he talks about persecution and people falling away from the faith. But you get the feeling that as Jesus has this dialogue with them that underlying this whole thing is really he's not really answering the question of when. But instead he's more he wants them to be much more concerned about how. How will they live? As they wait for that day. What will their lives look like when that day comes? Will they be ready and prepared? And he says in the midst of this discourse. That the people who stand firm in the faith will be saved. And you could almost hear the disciples saying what does that mean to stand firm? How do we get prepared? And Jesus says let me tell you a story. It's a story very familiar to you. It's about a wedding and about ten virgins or ten bridesmaids. Now you know you have to remember weddings we have some different rituals to our weddings than they had in the first century. In the first century as best we can understand it the, the bride and her bridesmaids would go to her house on the day of her wedding but they and the groom would come to get them. But They had no set time as to when the groom was going to come. They just had to wait and be ready. Most of the time it took place at night after the day of working. And so they all had lanterns. And and these lanterns were a little bit different than just a typical lantern. They had some special things to it. Most people think probably had a dome over it. Something that identified it as a wedding lantern. And And the lantern became sort of your entry ticket... ...into being a part of the wedding procession. Because when the groom came... And he, and he picked up the bride and, and her bridesmaids along with his groomsmen. They made this long procession through the streets of the city and ended up typically at the groom's house or someplace where they had the ceremony and the big feast afterwards. And you weren't a part of the ceremony and you weren't a part of the, of the procession if you didn't have the right lamp. And the lamp was lit so you could see where you were going. And Jesus says there are ten bridesmaids waiting at the bride's house, and five of them he calls wise, and five of them he calls foolish. Now, the Greek word for foolish you use us here is moros, which another form of that is moron. And so in essence, Jesus says you have five bridesmaids who are wise, sensible, and you have five bridesmaids that are something else. And what sets them apart is that the wise bridesmaids understand that they may be here a while, so they bring extra oil. And the ones that are foolish decide that they'll take their chances. And so they wait. And I suspect that you might imagine the bridegroom probably likes to play a little cat and mouse game with the bride and her bridesmaids. And trying to surprise them and make them wait as long as possible... And so they fall asleep. And, you know, nothing wrong with falling asleep. That's not the issue. The issue is what happens when they wake up. And they say, the bridegroom is here. He's coming. And they trim their lamps. And the five foolish realize they don't have enough oil. And so they ask the others, can we have some of your oil? No, we don't have enough for ourselves. Go get some yourself. And so they go off. And by the time they get back, the procession has ended. The people have gone into the wedding, into the feast, and the door is shut. So I'm assuming... They may live in a place like Houghton, where you can't just, you know, walk down the block and get the oil you need, but you've got to drive a Right? And they knock on the door, fully expecting to get in. But the bridegroom says, I don't know you. And Jesus says, keep watch. And the moral of the story is, if you want to be rewarded by God... Be sensible, prudent, cautious. And then Jesus says, But that's not all. Let me tell you another story. And this one's about a master who is very wealthy and goes on is getting ready to go on a journey, and he has three servants, and he leaves his wealth with the three servants. Now, we don't know exactly what a talent is. You know, a lot of translations is talent. I think the one that was on the screen this morning says bags of gold. And that's probably appropriate because we don't really know. It might be property, it might be money, some kind of way of identifying wealth that you can put your hands on. Some kind of liquid asset. And I just read this week that someone surmises that if you consider that they gave them these talents, a talent might have been worth 15 years of wages. That maybe he, in our money, he gave them, between the three of them, almost $2 million. And he gives to one five, to one two, to one one. And he leaves. And and the one with five and the one with two go off and they invest theirs. And, and they double their investment. Which means that they must have taken a high risk to get that kind of high reward. Some people speculate that maybe they started a business. We all know starting a business can be a tricky thing. All it takes is one bad crop. All it takes is, is the economy taking a dip. And we know businesses are dying all over the place. They take a huge risk. The third guy takes his, his bag of gold or his talent and he goes to his house and buries it in the backyard. Sometime later, the master comes back and he says, okay, guys, what do you got for me? And the guy with five says, I got five more. And the guy with two says, I got two more. And the master is elated. Way to go, guys. That's awesome. Good for you. It's terrific. In fact, I'm so pleased with you. I want you to come into my home and and I want us to have a more intimate friendship. And the third guy comes and he he says, you know, master, I knew you're a pretty tough guy. And I didn't want to. I didn't want to lose what you gave me, so I buried it. And here it is. And, and I didn't gain anymore, but I didn't lose it. And the master says, "You wicked, lazy servant! Get rid of him. I don't want him in my sight. Condemn him to the worst place possible." And the moral of this story is: if you want to be rewarded by God, take risks. Be reckless. Now the paradox of, of these two stories is, is interesting to me because on the one hand you have you have bridesmaids who play it safe and are rewarded and other bridesmaids who play fast and loose with their oil and are punished. And in the other story you have a servant who plays it safe and he's punished. And a couple of other servants who play fast and loose with their talents, and they're rewarded. And we see once again this paradox, this tension of what it means to be a follower of Christ. We come face to face again with the call of God to keep two seemingly opposite truths in tension. That they are not, neither, they're not both half true, they're both fully true. And we're called to keep them in tension if we're going to be ready and prepared and live the way we're supposed to live as followers of Christ for when that day comes and he returns. Now it seems to me that underlying all of the responses of both the bridesmaids and the servants, when we, when we begin to think of it in terms of, of the spiritual tone, is their view of God. Our view of God is so essential to how we live and how we respond to God. When, before Adam and Eve sinned, they had a perfect relationship with God. When God spoke, they knew exactly what he meant. They saw God for who he was and his character and his nature. And when they looked at God, they saw him just as he was. But the moment sin entered the world, our receptors were damaged. And our understanding of God was twisted and skewed. And we live with that today. Because of our sin, because of the sins that people do against us, because of living in a fallen sinful world, we have a skewed view of God. We have all kinds of false views of God that we live with. And ways that we imagine God. And even though God's message to us hasn't changed, and He hasn't changed we don't see him for who he actually is. And we don't hear him for who he act, what he actually says. And we, we wrestle with these false views of God and it creates all kind of havoc for us. And I think that these servants in the story and the bridesmaids in their story, it's their view of God that's determining how they respond in each situation. I'm thinking about the first chapter of John's gospel. When John writes, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And it's always intrigued me that Jesus is described in his character and his nature as being full of grace and truth. And I think that's because the Father is full of grace and truth. And I think those two elements of the nature of God are underlying all the responses in the stories. When you look at the story of the bridesmaids, the five bridesmaids who are foolish, who are not prepared, I think have a sense of apathy toward God that he really isn't full of truth. And because of that, he's not going to hold us accountable for what we do and how we live. They're not really serious about God. These bridesmaids don't really care that much about the groom or the bride because if they did, they would have taken the time to prepare. I mean, five of them do. Five of them know this may take a while. I care enough about the bride and groom. I want to be a part of this wonderful day with them that I'm going to take the extra time and spend the extra money to make sure that I am ready when the event takes place. But the other five say we'll take our chances. And why would they say that, except that the bride and groom are just not that important to them. And I think they believe, whether they have a lamp lit or not, if they knock on the door, the bridegroom will say, oh, it's no big deal, come on in. And they're surprised because he doesn't. There is a calling on our lives of godly caution, of godly prudence. I think it I think it rests in our ability to to enhance and to, to get engage ourselves in the spiritual disciplines, in the means of grace. It's about developing our hearts and our souls, and we can never be we can never be too cautious about developing our hearts and our souls. And so God has given us these spiritual disciplines and the means of grace so that our hearts can begin to develop like the heart of God. It deals with how we pray. It deals with our, our reading of the scriptures. It deals with our commitment to be a body of believers, and to be accountable to each other and to connect with each other and to share life with each other and to be transparent with each other. All of the ways in which God gives us that we use to develop our hearts and our souls, we cannot be too cautious and too prudent about doing that. So the question that keeps coming to us is, are we really taking advantage of the means of grace and the spiritual disciplines to develop our hearts? When we think about our our discretionary time, how much of that time is being spent in prayer, in studying the Word, and meditating upon the Word, in connecting our lives together, in putting ourselves in places where we're accountable to each other and where we encourage and challenge each other so that we have opportunities to grow with each other. And our unwillingness to invest our time and energy into the spiritual disciplines are just like these foolish virgins who are saying i'll take my chances and we know what jesus calls them when you look at the second story i think that the false view of god here is about really believing that god is full of grace and this servant who buries his talent in the ground is so afraid of the master that he won't take any risks. What's interesting to me is that the first two servants don't seem to feel that way about the master. I think they they believe that if they take the risk, then they're doing what the master wants them to do. And they believe that Somehow that if, if they take a risk and it doesn't turn out the way they want to, the master's not going to be angry with them, but instead he's going to say, good job taking the risk. That's what I wanted you to do. And I suspect we struggle with living out our lives and it looks like the servant who buried his talent in the ground. Because our image of God is warped and twisted And something in us about this fear of God is that if we take a risk and it doesn't turn out the way we had hoped or how God hopes, he's going to bring the hammer down on us. Ever feel that way? Ever wonder about that? Somehow these first two servants have come to understand that it's in the risking. That they're being obedient and they're doing what the master wants. And you and I are continually called to risk. How do we risk? We don't take risks in how we develop our heart, we do take risks in how we live in this world. We take risks with generosity, with our resources. That's why we have have wanted to do this faith promise. To give us an opportunity to say, I want to trust God about what he wants to give through me in ways that I can't really envision on my own. It comes into how we pray. Do we pray with a safety net? Or do we pray with bold and courageous prayers? Asking God to do more than we could ever dream of God doing. To pray for the miraculous and to pray for God to do something more powerful than we could imagine. And you know, of course the argument to that is what if God doesn't do it? That's God's problem, not ours. He just calls us to pray bold, confident, risky prayers. Because something in us believes that that God can be trusted. And that God is full of grace that even when when our risk doesn't turn out the way we want it to, we've risked and that's what God wants. And see, it comes down to the nature and the character of God because the God who's calling us to risk is the greatest risk taker who has ever been. I mean, this is the God who creates us with free will knowing full well we're going to reject Him. This is the God who, who creates us and, and, and once he enters covenant with us and with Israel, even though he knows, I'm going to run after other gods. It's the God who sends his Son to be the means of salvation for the world, knowing full well that we're going to put him on a cross. That's why I have a hard time believing in, in the theological idea of limited atonement. The theology that says that the cross of Christ is so precious and and, and so meaningful that, that it can only be for people who are going to accept it and receive it positively. But that doesn't seem to fit the nature of God that I see throughout all the pages of Scripture who is continually putting himself out there and risking over and over and over again even though the risk doesn't turn out the way he would have wanted it to be. God's calling us to risk with our love. To love in a way that is costly to us and that may not be reciprocated. You know, we're hesitant to love if we don't think and to express love. If we, if we aren't sure, that's going to be given back to us, right? I and mean, If you've ever been in the moment where for the first time you said to someone, I love you. Most of us will wait till the moment when we're pretty sure that person is going to say, I love you back, right? That's how we live our lives. That's the safety net that we live with. And yet God is calling us to move past that and to love people without any any promise of whether they're going to love us back or not. And we live with this kind of reckless abandon in our love and our generosity and our prayers and the way we engage with each other. It's this tension. It's this tension of, of godly caution on one side and, and, and godly recklessness on the other side. And you may be thinking, I don't really like the word reckless. I, I'm using that word because, in my opinion... Most of us are not going to struggle with being too much risk takers. We're going to struggle with being too cautious. And so I've used the word reckless because something to jar us out of this sense of living with a safety net. But it's doing both. Now granted, there are there's, there's good caution and bad caution. You know, children, you know... Parents would say to us, "You know, look both ways before you cross the street." That's good caution. Or don't run with scissors. Or if you keep that up, your eyes are going to stay that way. You know, we, we, there's good caution, and, and, and we we need to have good caution. And, and there's good and bad risk. I was in Wegman's a I don't know, a week or so ago, and they, and walked to the back of the store, and they had samples. You know, I, I love going to stores and have samples. In fact, we try to time it at Sam's Club where we get the most samples and then off don't have to buy lunch. It's kind of cheap that way. But, you know, you go into Wegmans and they're having samples of chips and salsa. And I went up to the table and the woman asked the crazy question, would you like a sample? Of course. Um, my question is, how many can I have, right? You go back, you change clothes, you go get another one. Uh, you know, um, so she says, it's chips and salsa. She says, what kind of salsa do you want? You want mild, medium, or hot? And I thought, well, I said, I'll try the medium. And she said to me, oh, you're not much of a risk taker, huh? And I said, give me the hot. Peer pressure. Some risks you take are unwise. I'm just going to tell you, some risks you take are unwise. That was one of them. I live with that hot in my mouth most of the day. There's good and bad risks. But again, I think for most of us, the struggle is not that that we take too many risks, it's that we don't take enough. And we live so far below what God's designs are for our lives. God's thinking huge and big for our lives and we settle for small. God wants to, to, to pour out all the fullness of his blessing on us and we settle for just this little bit. I keep going back to what F.B. Meyer once said, a pastor from another generation or so back. He said, you know, the greatest disappointment in heaven, if there are going to be disappointments in heaven, is when we come to realize all that God wanted to do in our lives if we had just let him. A.W. Tozer said his four propositions about about the blessing living with the blessing of Christ said so you get nothing unless you go for it you'll have as, as much as you insist on having and you'll have as little as you're satisfied with and he said you now have as much of Christ as you really want How much of Christ do we want? We live in this tension of godly caution and and godly risk taking. And the way we know whether we are in any way adequately or appropriately living in this tension as God designs is our actions. What we do with our time. How we relate to other people. Because it's one thing to say, I believe that's true. It's another thing to live it. Because what comes out of us is really what we believe. Our actions are are simply the result of what's truly inside of us. The priorities, the desires that we want from, from God in our lives. Greatest threat, I think, and deception of the enemy about all of this is to cause us to think that a little bit with God is enough. That just getting by is enough. That, you know, it doesn't really matter. But it does. And in fact, the Scripture tells us that there are eternal consequences to our willingness and our desire to live out our lives in this paradox, this tension of godly caution and prudence and godly recklessness and risk-taking. In 2005, the movie Batman Begins was released and it's a little different movie than what I was used to. You know, I grew up in the 60s with the Adam West kind of cartoonish uh, cheesy kind of you know, television show the pop and Zhao and all those things, and this is a much darker perspective about Batman. But it, I like it. There's a lot, a lot underlying things in these movies. And uh, Christian Bale plays Bruce Wayne slash Batman, and his childhood friend is Rachel Dawes, who's played by Katie Holmes. And uh, as they grow up, they their lives go different directions, and. Bruce goes off and spends his life doing all kinds of things around the world and getting himself into a lot of trouble in the process. And Rachel stays in Gotham City and becomes an assistant district attorney. And when he, Bruce Wayne returns to the city, it's a mess. The the, the crime lords are running everything, including the law enforcement. And Rachel, his assistant DA, is trying to clean up what she can, but she's not making much progress. And, and Bruce Wayne's trying to figure out what he ought to do, and he's beginning to develop this idea about becoming Batman and, and what he might do about it. But he's also wrestling with all of the wealth that he has and, and just living a life where he can just kind of flaunt that and a life of frivolity and, and just doing what he wants to do. And he's on one of having one of those days of sort of flaunting his wealth and living frivolously, When he has a chance encounter with Rachel, she's watched him and observes what's going on and she understands what he's doing and he cares a lot for her and he sees how disappointed she is in him. And he says to her, Rachel, all of this, it's not really me. Inside, inside, I am more. And she says to him, Bruce, you may be that same great kid that you used to be, but it's not who you are underneath. It's what you do that defines you. And the gospel is calling us about what we do, not what we say we believe. Not what we declare is important to us, but how we live our lives. What comes out of us? What are our priorities? What does that look like? As God calls us to this paradox, this tension of godly caution and and godly recklessness, so that we can be prepared for his coming on that day by living for him this day. Gracious Father, open our eyes to what you're calling us to be, to do, Help us to see a bit more of your call and what it means for our lives to live in this paradox, in this tension. That we might experience the fullness of who you are and intimacy with you. And be ready for your coming every day. Through Christ. Amen.